The opinions and viewpoints expressed in .NET Rocks are not necessarily those of its sponsors or of Microsoft Corporation, its partners, or employees. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, which is solely responsible for its content. Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter. Hey, Rockheads, quit sinking your handheld and listen up. It's time for another stellar episode of .NET Rocks, the internet audio talk show for .NET developers with Carl Franklin and Richard Campbell. This is Lawrence Ryan here to announce show number 277 with guest Venkat Subramaniam, recorded live Tuesday, September 25th, 2007. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net. Training developers to work smarter. And now, bringing world-class expert-led training in C-Sharp, ASP.NET, VB.NET, SharePoint, BizTalk, Team System, and Workflow Foundation on-site to your development team. Details online at www.franklins.net. Support is also provided by Telerik. Combining the best in Windows forms and ASP.NET controls with first-class customer service. Online at www.telerik.com. And by Developer Express, crafting first-class tools, frameworks, and controls for the .NET developer. Improve your experience online at www.devexpress.com. Support is also provided by Code Magazine, the leading independent magazine for .NET developers. Online at www.code-magazine.com. And now, the man with enough frequent flyer points to buy a small country, Carl Franklin. Thank you very much, and welcome back to .NET Rocks. This is Carl Franklin. I'm here with Richard Campbell. Richard, how are you? I'm doing well, sir. And you? I'm well. Ready for another show? Uh, another I'm great show? Ready. Hey, you know what? We're in Bulgaria right now. Yes, we are. Don't you love time shifting with radio? Mumkamu. Oh, jeez. Yep. You just like being stared at in bars. No, well, yeah, I guess. No, I, I just like people to go, huh? <laughs> it's always fun to go to a foreign country and learn completely surreal phrases and then shout them out at the top of your lungs in a bar. Right. That's great. That's I your technique. That. I love that. Because, you know, who cares if they laugh at you? You're going home. Right. Right? Nobody knows who you are, so it's great. I can't do that in this country. I'd get arrested. Yes. Well, Richard, let's get right into Better Know a Framework. Excellent. <laughs> what do you got for me this week? Well, this week uh, uh, I went digging in the framework and I found a really, really interesting class. Uh, it, it's part of an interesting namespace. It's the system.web.management namespace. Okay. And uh, the system.web.management namespace has classes that do all sorts of, um, uh, well, management of web, ser web servers and web farms. So a well-named set of classes. 
It is. And in particular, I was looking at the uh, web audit event class. Oh, Yep, and the web audit event class allows you to audit web events, as you might think. Um, there's a great uh, article on the uh, Microsoft.NET Framework SDK at uh, .netjunkies.com where they talk about what, what exactly this is. The documentation is a little bit, um, you know, terse. But uh, basically, the, the idea is that you get these events that happen, you can subscribe to them, and then there are providers for saving events to SQL Server, sending event reports through email, writing events to the Windows event log, and even going through WMI. In fact, there's a, a WMI web event provider class that you just plug in, and you do all this through the web config file. Cool. Yeah, so um, I haven't uh, messed around with it myself, but it looks like there's a lot of great tools in there for uh, for doing management of websites. So that is your framework class of the day. Nice. What you got for me? I got a quick email for you, which will amuse you. And it's from Eric Moreau. He says, hi, at the beginning of your show, number 275, you read a comment from a listener complaining about the lack of a spell checker in Visual Studio and the fact that you <laughs> didn't request it when Beth Massey was asking you for a missing feature. I'm well, still, it's still keeping me up at night. Let me I'm just tell you. Devastated. Well, I just found this in my RSS feed and it points to an InfoQ article which is basically says that in Visual Studio 2008, they're going to add a spell no checker. No way. Well, the real story is that FX Cop, which is in, it was integrated into uh, Visual Studio 2005, had a bunch of features in it, one of which is a spell checker, but it was turned off in 2005, and now it's being turned back on for well, 2008. And really, we're talking about comments and string literals, really. Well, not and even for FXCop, it was really about making sure you got your method names right. You didn't want to have a typo in the method name, especially when you're building something like the .NET framework and have that name last forever. Well, method names are, are well, you know, in VB, we have the background compiler, which does that kind of checking if you're actually writing code. But I don't want a spell checker to look at my code, frankly. Well, I'm pointing out that was the original intention here, but okay. for the request to have your comments properly spell-checked, that's now going to work in 2008. Interesting. And so Eric finishes off his email with, is your podcast so powerful <laughs> that you can have a new feature implemented in a matter of days? <laughs> uh, no. No. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, it's nice to think about. Yeah. <laughs> Well, let's get to the contest winner this week. Excellent. As you know, every Tuesday we pick a winner of uh, a Tom Bin brain bag, somebody who went to .netrocks.com slash Barcelona and answered the question of the week correctly. And uh, last week's question was, in episode 274 with Beth Massey and Charlie Calvert, what stereotypical label did Carl attach to out-of-work Fox Pro developers of the female persuasion? And the answer was... Fox Pro Moms. Nice. And the winner, which we chose at random from the correct answers, so the people who had the correct answer, is Nigel Spencer from Australia. Wow, cool. Nigel, we're going to be shipping a, a Tom Bin brain bag halfway around the world just for you, man. Congratulations. And now you're in the list of potential winners for one of the two 24-inch 1920 by 1200 Developer special LCD monitors. That's right. We went to Walmart and got the best stuff they had. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Uh, it's not true. We haven't even talked about what brand we're going to give away. Probably a Dell. It'll be a Dell. Yeah. And for no other reason than it's very easy to ship Dell internationally. Excellent. All right. Well, uh, this week's question for those who are still playing along for a brain bag and a chance at one of those 24-inch monitors is, what is the only browser-based code technology that Jack Harrington does not work with by his own admission? Right. If you think you know the answer to that, go to dotnetrocks.com slash Barcelona and uh, enter the answer and uh, you get a chance to win. Hey, Richard. Um, Greg Brill down at Infusion still hiring people for the New York City tour. I know the tour has been going on for a long time, but he's just uh, looking for really good people who want to work in a creative environment and live in an apartment in Manhattan rent-free for a year. That's part of the deal. It's quite an adventure. Quite an adventure. And... Um, He's got, oh, I don't know, 15 or so .NET Rocks listeners that have uh, made the jump already. So you'll be in good company. You'll be forced to listen to .NET Rocks every day. <laughs> you know one of the things they do at that company? You know what he has them do? He has them do improvisational theater. No you know, kidding. Like, uh, improv comedy? Yeah. Yeah. Can you imagine Nick Landry doing improv comedy? I'm trying not to. Yeah, that's the thing that that's part of the deal when you work for Infusion. You got you get to do improv comedy. You take classes in it. Well, you're in New York. You're in the town that has Broadway. Right. You might as well embrace it all and do a little theater. <laughs> it's pretty cool. Well, if you're interested in that deal, go to shrinkster.com slash KH6. And Richard, you know, uh, we've been saying in every .NET Rocks episode that uh, we've got a big fall lineup of shows that we're going to. But if you are not going to Dev Connections, you're not going to TechEd Europe, and you're going to be around uh, the week of November 5 through 9, if you're going to be around Redmond, you might want to check out the Patterns and Practices Summit, which is being held at the Microsoft Conference Center. Uh, keynotes by Anders Halsberg, Steve McConnell, Scott Guthrie, and Scott Hanselman, and John Lamb. Wow. That and, is quite a list of speakers. Yeah, and they're also going to have an evening with Microsoft Research. Not sure exactly what that is, but if you're interested in that, go to pnpsummit.com. Now, I went to one of these Microsoft Research evenings back in April, and imagine uh, a vendor booth set up, maybe a dozen booths in a room, except each one of them is a different Microsoft Research Lab working on some weird new technology. Yeah, and you get to hang out and talk to the guys that, you know, have no life. And, and check all this stuff out. It's really cool. That's awesome. So there you go, pnpsummit.com if you're interested in that. Richard, uh, let's introduce Venkat one more time to .NET Rocks. Venkat Subramaniam is an agile developer who teaches and mentors he has significant experience in architecture, design, and development of distributed object systems. He's worked in positions from programmer analyst to systems architect at organizations like Halliburton, Raytheon, and Simulation Sciences. Venkat has trained more than 2,500 software professionals around the world. He's also an adjunct professor at the University of Houston and teaches the Professional Software Developer Series at the Technology Education Center, Rice University. Also a regular speaker at various conferences and user groups, would you please welcome our old friend, Benkit Subramaniam. Welcome back to the show, Benkit. Thank you, guys, for having me back on the show. Yeah, what pleasure to have you. It's been a while since we last talked. Um, I know that uh, to this the day of this recording is the day the Xbox 360 game Halo 3 comes out. Are you planning to uh, get in your 
release your violent tendencies tonight? <laughs> <laughs> Not quite. Actually, I'm on the road traveling way too much, so I don't think I'll have time anytime soon, unfortunately. Yeah. Yeah. Richard, do you play Xbox games? You know, I've so far resisted putting video game machines into the house so far. So uh, uh, I know. Yeah. <laughs> I'm more like a spider solitaire guy myself. I don't know. <laughs> just blow, you know, wasting people just doesn't appeal to me. I don't know. Too violent. Yeah, well, you know, that's what happens. You get at like a certain age and, you know, you're just less and less interested in maiming people. I don't know. Yeah, loses your enthusiasm, right? I guess so, yeah. So, Venkat, uh, we're here to talk about the DLR, and we were just um, noticing before the recording that there isn't a whole lot of information on the web about it, the dynamic language runtime. In fact, most of the information is from this show. Yep. You know, it's relatively new. It's, uh, uh, as for us, you know, its introduction to .NET is concerned. And something that's much more broader, I would say, is dynamic languages itself. And that's not new, but it's it's new and old in the same time because it's a concept that's been around for a good 40, 50 years, uh, except that we just haven't, as software community, paid too much attention to it. And some of the recent uh, exciting languages and frameworks and productivity gains reported is leading excitement in this area. And both uh, the Java community and the .NET community is beginning to pay attention to this a lot more closer. So certainly it, it's relatively new, and I'm I'm sure um, you know uh, several months from now we'll have more things to uh, play with on the .NET side. Now. Um... There's been some interesting uh, things that have come out in the news with regards to Ruby, like the, there's a .NET connector now for Ruby. and um, But I haven't seen a whole heck of a lot of, uh, of people talking about dynamic language stuff. And in fact, I've seen a little bit of um, throwback, pushback rather, you know, uh, uh, from some of the blogs. Some people are saying, you know, that I wouldn't, I saw the comment out there, you know, the dynamic stuff is nice to play around with for small projects, but I wouldn't do an enterprise project with uh, with Ruby. Well, actually, it's, it's interesting you say that because um, I was listening to uh, Dave Thomas, the pragmatic programmer, uh, early this year in, in a conference, and he, had a, he made a very interesting point. Uh, his point was not whether Ruby is ready for the enterprise, if it's whether enterprise is ready for Ruby. And, uh, yes, there are certain things that I would agree that Ruby and um, dynamic languages in general may make it a bit challenging in terms of enterprise applications, but that's changing extremely fast. Uh, in fact, I would, to the great extent, argue that the fact that uh, Ruby-like programming languages now can run on Java with uh, the benefit of things like JRuby and the fact that we can actually run this on .NET, uh, you know, with DLR, uh, makes uh, language like Ruby and dynamic other dynamic languages quite viable for the enterprise. And we'll talk more about this certainly as we go forward here. But uh, it, it certainly uh, is a great opportunity for developers to benefit from these languages, but yet not completely migrate from their platform of choice. You know, whatever platform, whether Java or .NET, they are using. And I think this is a win-win situation for everybody involved in this. 
So do you see that the CLR and by extension the DLR is the key reason that now dynamic languages are finally viable? I mean, like you said, they've been around a long time. They haven't dominated. So what's happened that now sort of brings them back up into significance? So there are there are fourfold of um, you know things that have happened in the past several several years. Um, you know, dynamic languages, and in fact, uh, I want to also expand a little bit further later on, uh, a little bit beyond dynamic languages. So we'll talk about that. But but these languages have been around for a long time, uh, and you know, people in the academics, people in some uh, you know very restrictive or esoteric projects were involved in this most of the time. The mainstream never picked it up, but you can uh, quite a bit draw analogy to uh, what happened in object-oriented programming. If you remember very clearly, we were debating whether object-oriented programming would even make sense uh, up into early 90s, you know, into 91, 92 time frame, we were still debating about those things. Uh, but if you uh, find out when object-oriented programming was actually introduced, it was introduced in 1967, you know, so it takes about... Uh, you know, 15, 20 years sometimes for things to attain maturity. So it's not unusual in our field. As much as we are all pretty dynamic and we keep saying the change happens very fast, uh, some of the changes actually take a long time to happen. Well, you got to admit, though, Venkat, that back in 1967, you know, it wasn't a good idea because we didn't have test-driven development. We didn't have things that are that make static languages redundant. Sure, but right. even, even as much as 19... 87, we quite didn't have test-driven development, but I would say C++ overnight made a big change uh, in, in the community of object-oriented programming because we found out that we could actually use it in enterprise because C programs, you know, were the majority of the code, you know, ignoring COBOL for a minute, uh, and we were able to write some more object-oriented code without making a total transformation in terms of language and, and platform and so on. So in terms of dynamic languages, I think um, there are three things that, that are really happening. One is that while we have had languages that are dynamic in nature for a long, long time, I want to argue that some of the languages that we have you know, more recently are a lot more open than the languages we have had over the past several years. Um, Ruby is much more open and accessible. Uh, it doesn't require a specific environment to run into in Similarly, there are languages on the Java Virtual Machine and also on the .NET that are bringing in the dynamic language features. So I think the openness of platform and access and availability of these languages is, is one contributor. The second thing is the language features are, are uh, in terms of syntax, sugar that gets added uh, is, is invaluable. Uh, when I look at some code in some functional programming languages, you know, I look at the power and I say, you know, wow, this is amazing power that I have on hand. But then I look at the syntax and I'm like, wow, that syntax was not intuitive. The syntax was not easy to work with. So I think uh, for a great part, the languages themselves, by adding the syntax sugar, have come halfway in, in making it possible for, you know, day-to-day uh, -day developers, average and above average developers, to pick up the syntax of these languages and, and use them and and sometimes that makes a big difference because if the syntax is intimidating and complex, it just puts us off. We just can't take that much power. And I think the second thing uh, that's happened is uh, machine speeds. You know, imagine trying to 
do anything like this with the 1980s processor speed. Sure. Uh, machines are much more faster. I mean, I've got a dual-core processor on my laptop that I carry around today, and that itself is going to be not as powerful as the other machines that are coming out and, and available right now. So so we have immense amount of uh, processing power on our hand these days. So are you ready for the big news? Telerik is taking the wraps off four new product updates. RAD controls for ASP.NET, RAD controls for WinForms, the first official version of the Telerik reporting tool, and a brand new suite codenamed RAD Controls Prometheus. And you guys think I don't sleep. Telerik's tools have always been great, but I think this time they've outdone themselves. Well, here are the details. Prometheus is built on top of Microsoft ASP.NET Ajax, and it'll become the successor of RAD controls for ASP.NET. Just as ASP.NET Ajax will be the future of ASP.NET, RAD controls Prometheus represents the future direction of all new Telerik development tools. This new suite of controls will also pave the way for seamless integration with Microsoft Silverlight, formerly WPFE. The WinForms suite aims for the stars with powerful new grid, chart, and tree view controls. For me, it seems like a major player on the WinForms market. Another intriguing addition to Telerik's portfolio this spring is Telerik Reporting. The product introduces a new level of development experience, which Telerik collectively calls easeability, a naturally intuitive mouse-only approach to generating Windows, Web, and PDF reports. And if that's not enough, go to www.telerik.com to check out what's new with Telerik's renowned RAD controls for ASP.NET. I remember Venkat when VB4 came out, and people were really upset because it was so slow. Right, right. <laughs> it was yep, just yep. the machines hadn't caught up to it. Exactly. And, and uh, you know, machines have come, uh, you know, not that applications are running faster, right? Applications are still struggling because the demand we have on the machines is higher right now than we had, you know, 15, 20 years ago. Uh, but certainly machines have come, come around to be much more faster. And, um, you know, with the, with also added to that is what you mentioned earlier, uh, is, uh, is not an acceptance, unfortunately, at this point, but a more awareness of test-driven development. And I'm saying that, uh, you know, a little bit, uh, with, a, with, um, a bit of a concern because I don't think test-driven development has been accepted yet into the mainstream. Uh, the awareness certainly has increased quite extent, you know, quite a bit. But with the dynamic language, uh, it certainly changes uh, the way that we develop code. In according to the wise words of Uncle, Uncle Ben, uh, with power comes responsibility. So we, we certainly need to be more responsible with to, to uh, you know, uh, benefit the power of these dynamic languages. But certainly, uh, test-driven development is, uh, is almost mandatory uh, to, to even survive in, in a dynamic language. I, I got to think that Microsoft has got a fundamental problem here, which is, you know, if they change their core languages to be dynamic over static and don't provide static languages anymore, like if one day we wake up and then, you know, C-sharp and VB are fully dynamic, right, with no option for static type checking or anything like that, um, you, you know, that, that it just seems to be an impossibility for me to, 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 to think that Microsoft would do that because, you, you, you know, you're totally alienating all this uh, this history of your static languages, and if people aren't aren't using test-driven development techniques and 
taking advantage of some of the more agile practices, then they're not going to get the benefit of the dynamic languages. You know, in in, in theory, at, at, in, in practice, I think we're not going to completely do away with static languages. But having said that, I'm not concerned that that would be a big problem for a number of reasons. One is, even in a static language, one thing that I've learned over the years, you know, my first C program I wrote a long time ago, and I put a main, and I say int, you know, uh, x, and then, you know, scan of person d, comma, uh, x, you know, within parentheses, obviously. And I can compile the code, the code compiles with no errors, and I run the code, and the stupid code won't work. I was like, why doesn't this work? Why did it crash? Hmm. And eventually I found out that I missed an ampersand in front of the x, right? right? So just because the compiler compiled the code, it doesn't mean that the code is anywhere close to right. Right. And and in fact, I would even want to take a slightly different approach. I am not advocating a hundred percent unit test coverage at all. Uh, what I would like to advocate, however, is a hundred percent coverage. And there's a big difference between the two. I think, you know, irrespective of whether we are dealing with a static language or a dynamic language. Let's say you compile a C-sharp code today, and there's a huge block of code that goes through an else statement, and, and you never, ever executed that piece of code because all the little tests that you performed always took the if part and never the else part. And then once the code goes into production, what happens? Maybe four months later, somebody is giving a condition that does make the code go through that else part. Mm. And what's going to happen? You know, code code is like the IL code that you create is like like human kids, right? When you when you when you create them, you nurture them, you exercise them, you talk to them, <laughs> they become good society, <laughs> right? And then otherwise you set them forth in the world. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> otherwise this IL code that you generated feels neglected along the way. It says, "Look, the guy who wrote me never ever talked to me." <laughs> here I am in production one day, and you call me. And it, it creeps up and does all kinds of damage around there, right? Yeah. And so 10 years want... later, you got the nerve to come around here and call yourself my creator. Exactly, right? You want that IL code to think that it's important. You want to, Emotionally, you want to address the needs of that IL code. <laughs> you and want to give it friends to play with. You give it some friends to play with. You know, once in a while, you find out how it's doing, you know. So, you know, you don't want that to be an introvert. You want that to communicate and become a good, respectable <laughs> citizen out there. So, so I'm advocating... Wow, play dates for my unit tests. <laughs> <laughs> so, I'm not advocating a 100% unit test. I'm ad- advocating a 100% code coverage. So, take all the unit tests that you write. Take all the functional tests, the integration tests, the automated, you know, web test or a UI test or whatever test. Even include your manual tests. And when everything is put together, find out if there's a piece of code that never got touched. And if you have a piece of code that never got touched, ask yourself, why is the piece of code there after all these kinds of tests and active use of the application has gone by? And and, and ask yourself if there's a way to go about and touch it and, and exercise it or maybe possibly remove it. I haven't used this tool, by the way, but I heard there's a tool rightly named as Guantanamo. Which huh. actually goes and looks at code that's never used, exercised, or tested, and it removes it. I'm way too scared to send some of the code I have through the system. <laughs> May end up with no code at all in the end. But but the whole idea is that we want to make sure that the code is exercised. And that is true irrespective of whether I'm using a static language or a dynamic language. 
And if we go through the discipline, then it doesn't matter whether the language given to us is static or dynamic from that point of view. Uh, there was a, there was a, um, uh, you know, if you Google for this, you will find it. There was an intersection in, in the UK where there was a, you know, great amount of accident happening over and over and over. They, they tried all kinds of stuff. They put, uh, you know, signs. They put all kinds of signs. They put uh, various measures and people will just get into accidents. And then, you know, they, they decided they're going to try something drastically very different. They got rid of all possible signs or anything in that intersection, and they replaced it with one sign, and the sign read pink. And when people got to the intersection, all of a sudden they found out that they don't have any warnings. They don't have any way to know what's going on, and people started slowing down automatically. And the accident has gone down drastically in that intersection. And and in a, in a lot of ways, I would say the static versus dynamic typing is very similar argument. The compiler is giving us this great amount of false sense of security. I mean, I'm not here to say that the compiler is absolutely useless, so that's not where I'm going. But the type checking that the compiler gives us is is largely a false sense of security. And and dynamic languages don't give us that false sense of security, but turn around and give us a great amount of capability to write code that is extremely hard, if not impossible, in some places, even if it's impossible, right. to do with the static language. We're just really talking about changing the practice of software development to include tests and mocks and all of those things. So, it, you know, yeah, okay, your job might have gotten a little bit more complex now, or you might be a little more involved than just sitting down and simply banging out the code you used to bang out. But, uh, you know, the... The the IDE has gotten smarter. IntelliSense has gotten better. A lot of the problems of yesterday have gone away. So, and in the end, you're left with bug-free software, which is really the end result of uh, test-driven development. Right. It's it's not going to eliminate all the bugs. It just makes the code more robust. And if right. you do find a bug, this is perfectly you know going to happen. Add a test to address that, and it's a learning opportunity for us. I, I want to spend a minute about another misconception because I come across a lot of developers who have this misconception. There's a huge difference between statically typing and strong typing versus dynamic typing. And when you think about a static type language, take the example of C programming language, right? You, you, when you when you take a code, C and C++, and send it to a compiler, at compile time, the C compiler tells you whether your code is meeting a certain expectations on the syntax at the static time, meaning at compile time. Now, what you can do in C and C++ is you can pretty much take any object or, or a primitive and you can cast it to whatever you want. And what does the compiler do when you force that cast and compile it? It doesn't do anything. It just compiles the code for you. It doesn't tell you you're wrong. It says, okay, if that's what you want, you got it. Right. If you run that code, what's going to happen? It's going to crash if you're lucky. If not, it's going to misbehave. And if you turn up the volume, you can hear that you know, laughing behind the scene. It's like, <laughs> you thought I was safe, right? So the static compiler checking is purely a first level of defense, but once you get past that static compiler feature in C and C++, all bits are off. In the case of Java and C Sharp, that's not the end of it, because you do have the compiler t- checking for things statically, 
But if you do perform a wrong cast, it doesn't give you a compilation error, but when you start running your code, you do get a class cast exception. That's because fundamentally it's very strongly typed at the runtime. So at runtime, you get the error saying, no, you can't do this. You did cast it to this particular object, but that's not what it really is. So I would argue that Java and C++ C Sharp is a lot more strongly typed than C and C++ is. Because even if you get past the compiler, the runtime is going to tell you that you're wrong. Now, dynamic languages, quite a number of them, are very similar. You may, may or may not have a compiler. There are actually uh, dynamic languages that do offer a compiler support. It's not that there's no, no such thing. Uh, but on the other hand, uh, almost all dynamic languages take care of type checking at the runtime. So there's a difference between strong typing, which is dynamically typed, and dynamically typed weak typing. And language like Ruby and, and uh, you know, what, what the DLR guys are trying to bring forward with, all of them are strongly and dynamically typed. They're not weakly typed. And, and so we, it's not that we have lost all safety. We're just saying let's rely upon the runtime type safety and at the same time benefit from that kind of a dynamic behavior. Yeah, I get it. Is this really just about typing? Is, is that the only distinction between a static and a dynamic language is the, the variable behavior? That's a very good question, right? So, that in, in fact, it is not. In the fact that we don't spend so much time and effort with the typing releases a lot of constraint that's placed on us. And I would say, if you ask me, what is the real thing that I really look for in a dynamic language, it really comes from what's called the metaprogramming model. Now, what what is metaprogramming really? If you take, um, you know, I'm going to throw a very bad uh, analogy. Uh, this is really a bad analogy, but analogy, but I hope this kind of brings out the essence of it. If I'm a C++ programmer, and I work in C++ for 40 years, and I retire and open a restaurant, in my restaurant, people can come and order food, but they cannot ask for a menu. That's because <laughs> I don't know of reflection, right? At runtime, you can't come and query to me, hey, what are your methods? You can call methods on me. You can get response from me. If I'm a Java programmer after 40 years and I retire and open a restaurant, I not only will serve food, but people can also ask for a menu. But the right. real great restaurants that I like to go to are restaurants where they say, you know, forget what's on the menu. Tell us what you want and we will make that for you. Right. It, I hang around with so many people and literally there are a number of days I go to a steakhouse, but I'm a pure vegetarian. So we throw them uh, on a spin when we go there. I say, what do you have for vegetarian? <laughs> and, and they stare at you for like, excuse me, what did you just say, right? And then a real good <laughs> restaurant is where they say, okay, okay, don't worry about it. Tell us what you want and we'll try to get that for you, right? Actually, a really good restaurant is where you don't have any control. You just say, feed me, right? And then they bring <laughs> yeah. you what they like. <laughs> <laughs> and And so the idea is in a true dynamic language, you're not just querying for methods like reflection allows you to do, you can go inject it with methods dynamically. In a dynamic language, a class is never closed. So you can pretty much open any class, doesn't matter who wrote it, and you can start injecting that class with methods. Some of the beauties of dynamic languages, 
that you can actually use the concept of mixins. Mixin basically is where it's a it's a superb alternative to multiple inheritance. There are languages like C sharp and Java which has constrained us by not allowing multiple implementation inheritance and only give us multiple interface inheritance. But with the concept of mixin, you can attain the power of multiple uh, multiple inheritance, but without the perils that come with it. So, so by not having the compiler to stand in our way with the static type checking, we can turn it around and say, how can I benefit from some of this dynamic method injection metaprogramming where I can inject the behavior and modify the behavior of the class at runtime? And that pays for a great amount of flexibility. And, and, and as a result, as this may sound strange, it actually turns around and you end up writing lesser code. And this actually, I want to kind of mention one thing. As much as I like code generation, I think code generation is so 20th century. What we want is code synthesis. And what I mean by code synthesis is a method is actually generated in the, in memory on the fly. It is never created on the disk for you to mess with. You know, a code generation, the minute you generate the code, it's like each in the back. You want to kind of go modify it. You want to scratch it a little bit, and then it turns into a sore after a while. Whereas a generated code is something you never see on the disk. It just comes to life at the time of running, provides a service, and goes away. And it's extremely easy for us to create these dynamic methods, synthesize them on the fly with the dynamic languages. And then that's where, going back to your question, the real power of dynamic languages is. This portion of .NET Rocks is brought to you by our good friends at Developer Express. Developer Express, crafting first-class tools, frameworks, and controls for the .NET developer. Improve your experience online at www.devexpress.com. Now, when you're talking about the compiler sort of getting in the way, let's say, you know, uh, let me just, well, let me just ask it this way. You obviously have used dynamic languages. You've you've written real software with them. Do you you know address the fear of you know without that safety net of the compiler? Am I gonna get? Is there more of a chance that I'm gonna have type based errors? You know what I'm saying? Do you know, do we um, have those? The answer is you you use the word uh, the right word there, and the word is. Fear, and and I couldn't have chosen a better word to use, because what do we de- how do we deal with fear? There are two ways to deal with fear. One way to deal with fear is to run away and hide. The other way to deal with fear is to put in measures that will eliminate that concern that we have and move us in terms of you know more freedom and more productivity and more you know more enjoyment in life generally. And, and and exactly what we do in dynamic languages. Uh, one of the things I do when I program in dynamic languages, and, and uh, to a great extent I would say these are not things I do exclusively for dynamic languages because in my software development practice, I've actually used this when I was programming in C-sharp. So it's not that I did this when I programmed in dynamic language and did not do this in C-sharp, but it's just th- things that I've built around over the years that I found to be even more valuable with dynamic language. And one of them is is code review. And in the minute I mentioned that, you probably laughed and said, come on, Venkat, code review, it never works. You know what? I would agree with you. Code never, code review never works for a couple of reasons. If, you know, a lot of companies, the way they do the code review is they gather up the team on a Friday afternoon. They bring everybody into one room, maybe order pizza, 
and then they put the code on a huge screen and they start critiquing it. Okay, review. Uh, go, go ahead and review there, right? Yeah. Now, here's what happens. Three things happen. John, the programmer, says, wait a second, guys. You're going to put my code on the big screen and all, you, uh, all of you are going to get together and bash me? Uh, thank you. I don't want code review. <laughs> and then Sarah here, who is a developer, says, wait a minute. I'm already behind schedule. And the last thing I want to do is spend time looking at syncing code that John wrote. Uh, no, I'm not interested. And the manager says, wait a minute. The last time you guys got, did a code review, there was a fight and one guy actually quit. No more code review for you, right? Yeah. So code review is extremely political. And as a result, nobody wants to do the code review. And and we have done code review on projects actually extremely successfully. And the way that we have done that is in a very tactical way. If I finish writing a task, and how long, how long am I going to take, take to finish a task? Maybe half a day to a day, you know, give or take. And I'm going to, when I'm done with my task, in a very tactical way, I let you, for example, call to review my code. Then the next task I work on, I'm going to ask Richard to review it. So I rotate this between, you know, a couple of people on my team. So no one person and certainly not one group takes in charge of reviewing all the code in one, one shot. And we do this in very smaller pieces. We don't accumulate the code for end of the month to review. As, as soon as the task is done, one person reviews it and gives you fairly good feedback. I was talking to a gentleman in Washington, D.C., and he said something really nice. He said he does code review for his company in a very similar way, and he said it either makes him smarter or makes him a hero. I said, tell me what you mean by that. And he said it makes him a hero if somebody finds a way that he's doing something that they don't know about. They just learn something. And so he's a hero in their eyes. But if they come back and say, hey, why don't you refactor this code? Why don't you do this this way? Oh, by the way, you're not handling these things over here. And maybe you need to write these other tests. Then he becomes smarter because he learned a certain things he did not quite think of when he was writing the code. So when done very tactically, code review makes you, you smarter or a hero. And so why shouldn't we take the time to implement practices that will make us better developers? And this is not a huge time sink because... We're going to do this, and it typically takes about 10 to 15 minutes for somebody to code review on a task which, which took you about half a day to one day to implement. So, and again, like I said, I do this on C-sharp projects as well. I've actually done, I, I was working on a project where I had developers across the world, and the only way we could even survive on this project was by doing an active code review like the way I just mentioned uh, minutes ago. So we do that on a dynamic language, even more important. We also take the time to implement uh, unit tests and other kinds of tests. Uh, on a project I'm working on right now, we have a very uh, high um, n number of uh, code coverage. We started out by saying we want about 70 to 75% code coverage. Again, I want to emphasize this is not unit testing code coverage. This is total code coverage you know, the, for the overall system for all the tests that we have, including manual testing, integration, automated integration, functional unit tests, all put together. We set out about 70 to 75%. Very quickly, we found out that developers, as they were writing the code in order to meet this criteria, were lingering about 82% code coverage. Then we said, why don't we raise it a little bit more? And we went to about 85%. Hmm. Then we found we were lingering about 90%. And I'm not kidding with you. One morning, I woke up. I, I, I start my work very early, usually in the day. And I, I walk in there, and I found that there was a 98% code coverage. And, and honestly, my thought was, gee, what are we missing in order not to reach the 2%? And I walked in and I found out what it was, wrote a quick test, threw it in, and it was at 100%. Now, here's the beauty. When you raise it to a level, who in your team wants to be the guy who brings it down? 
right? Yeah. Nobody wants to take the blame. Oh, you know what? My contribution on the project was, our code coverage was, you know, say 40%, and I killed it and brought it to 20%. Nobody wants to take that credit. Yeah. So you can improve on the code coverage. And, and, and that's why I'm thinking where it makes sense is, if you insist on a unit test coverage, a lot of people are going to complain that a certain piece of code is not unit testable. And I have to agree with that to a certain parts of the code. But if you say you want a 100% coverage, I don't think that's unattainable. And and this can be done on any project. You know, start a project where there is absolutely no testing at all, your code coverage is zero. And then you set a goal to the team saying, we will never bring it down. You could never go now any lower than zero. And people start writing tests, and you, you know, march up one, two, three, four percent, and you will see this climb up to 20, 30 percent. That's much better than having a zero percent. And over a period of year or so, I think your team is going to have a much more code coverage and it becomes much more clearer that you're catching bugs you're quicker and you're not spending time, you know, reactively fixing bugs, but you're spending time proactively writing code that, are, that is of superior quality. I wonder also, and I think this sort of ties to Carl's earlier point, that the process of doing this test structures just forces us to think through the problem more thoroughly. You know, I, the number of times I've gotten into projects where it wasn't until the 50% point that we actually knew what we were really trying to build, anything that forces us to think before we code more, to understand the problem more thoroughly, just seems to save time in the end. Um, I could not agree more with, with, with just a few, you know, add-ons to what you just said. Uh, forcing us to think, uh, you know, before we code, but certainly at a more incremental pace and not up front, and I'm sure, you know, helps a great deal. But not only that, the other great advantage I've seen, you know, as a consultant, I walked into a number of projects, and they asked me to take a look at a code. And I opened the file, and there's this function, this method, which is 450 lines long within a class that is well over 5,000 lines long. How in the world am I going to understand what this method is doing and what this class is doing when you have line after line after line of code. When yeah. you start testing your code, you quickly realize you cannot possibly test a code that is one big ball of mud, and you start breaking into smaller pieces. Well, guess what? If you break into smaller pieces, the code becomes um, you know, more cohesive. And not only that, it's extremely difficult to test a piece of code that's doing logic when that code is stuck within a user interface. Here's the paradox of the 5,000-line you know, function, mm -hmm. which is that that is a perfect candidate to get rewritten because the guy who wrote it or the lady who wrote it leaves the company and it gets dumped in somebody else's lap and they look at it and they scratch their head for a week and they say, you know what, there's a better way to rewrite this. Right. So not only do, does the person writing it spend more time trying to wrestle with 5,000 lines of code, but then it gets dumped ultimately and rewritten. Right, but except that when when your entire project is full of all these 5,000 lines of code put together, it becomes cost prohibitive to even think about entirely throwing away the entire project and rewriting the whole thing. And and, and So the whole thing is a waste of time to begin with. Yeah, and, and unfortunately, the, those are products that are making money for companies, and they just cannot abandon the project and start over, and that's the limbo we are in. We just can't know whether to move forward or move, move backward or sideways. And, um, and, and, and when we do start writing tests on this code, 
we end up actually making the code more cohesive and making the code loosely coupled. So the collateral advantage of testing the code is that the design of the code becomes better. And, and so dynamic languages heavily depend upon following these good practices that are good to practice anyways, but they more so require us to do that. Otherwise, we could get, I think we'll get killed faster with these languages than, uh, you know, the other languages that we had if we don't follow some of these principles. Is this really what, what it's going to break down to, that we can actually outcompete our rivals using these languages? We can deliver better apps sooner? Actually, you know what, it's, it's, it's a very good way of putting it and asking the question because um, there are people who are actually specializing in some of these dynamic languages that's been around for a while, and that's exactly what they're betting on. And here's the beauty. With dynamic languages, you are a lot more productive. And because you're a lot more productive, it does require, you know, a certain level of competence. Um, and the, the analogy I would use is, if I have a 100-pound stone in the middle of the road, you may need somebody like Venkat, maybe you need about five people, you know what, realistically about 10 people like me to lift it and move it away. Or you can bring somebody half the size of me, put him on a crane, he presses two buttons and gets the stone out of the way. But the, the the 10 guys that you brought to move the stone versus this one or half a guy like me, that person has, the one person operating this, uh, the crane has a lot more skill and competence level, but he can do that job much more effectively because he has a crane that he can press the buttons on. He certainly has to take the time to learn what buttons to press, but you didn't need as many people. Exactly the same case. With the dynamic language, you need people with a greater amount of competence and skill but once you find them, you need fewer of them to get your project done. Now, how is this going to help us? The way this is going to help us is, keep in mind, this this highly competent person is probably going to cost you, actually, in all likelihood, is going to cost you more money than these, you know, people who don't have as much skill. But overall, collectively, you probably are going to end up spending as much or maybe lesser money on the overall project. But also where it makes a big difference is, the communication that happens between five people versus communication that happens between eight or 10 or 12 or 15 or 20 people is enormously different. The more number of people who work on a team, the more the com communication becomes the bottleneck. The fewer the people you have, the communication is more easier. So if you can have a fewer number of highly competent people and get the work done, you are much better off than having more number of people who are not as competent and work with a language that gives you lesser productivity. Now, this is not to say that every project in the world will benefit from this, but I think substantial number of projects in the world will benefit from this. You know, back in the 80s, we did not even imagine that most applications written today will be object-oriented, but now we don't even question that. I think we are on the verge of the next kind of change ahead of us. So, Venkat, let's bring it back to Visual Studio and the DLR for a minute. If you can um, sort of illuminate us on a little bit of what the you think the experience is going to be like. I know you don't work for Microsoft and everything. And we also did talk to John Lamb about this. But um, uh, tell us what you know about it and, and what, uh, what you think they're doing right and maybe what you don't. You know, the, the exciting thing for me is that when an organization pays attention to these things and says, you know, let's proactively step towards making this possible where our developers are given a choice 
and not dictate them into go go in one direction, but give them options and to pick pick and choose what makes sense to them. And from that point of view, um, I'm quite pleased at at, at what's happening, uh, not only within Microsoft but but also with uh, with Sun in terms of both companies coming forward. With the DLR itself, uh, what excites me is that you could actually write code in one of you know n number of dynamic languages and then you know certainly they're they're planning on four languages to begin with but there are also extension packages where other people interested i just saw an announcement of iron list for example you know so if you want to do uh, programming in other languages dynamic languages uh, you can do that in dlr and and to me the advantage of that is uh, you know going back to the talk about enterprise I may be interested in these dynamic languages, but the reality at the end of the day on certain projects is I may have substantial code that already is utilizing things that are either in Java or C Sharp, substantial code that's using an infrastructure and a platform, and by having these languages run on a runtime where I can not only use these dynamic languages alone, but I can mix them with other languages where substantial code has been written already, is 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 fantastic, and to me, one of the other things that I get excited about is that I can use something like Silverlight, and actually I can write Ruby code, for example, or or, or Python code, whatever people may choose, and then you can have that code actually execute on the browser side, irrespective of the platform on which you are on, uh, as the operating system is. I think that is remarkable. Uh, well, now, what if, that's great for Ruby and Jython and stuff, but what about for the rest of us developers that don't use those languages, that use C-sharp or VB.net? Well, you know, let's talk about that for a second. Right now, if you are using C-sharp or VB.net, that's not the only language you are using for all practical purposes. You are not a C-sharp programmer. You are using C-sharp, plus you are using some SQL, plus you are using some XML, plus you are using some JavaScript, so you already are using these different languages. What what difference this makes is when it comes to client side, you are able to utilize your capabilities of managed code not only on the server side. You know, server side programming, you could do ASP.NET with C Sharp and, and take advantage of all the things on the server side, but how can I benefit from that on the client side? The simple answer today on the ASP.NET world is no, you cannot because you have to rely upon JavaScript uh, to write your code for the client side. What, what this brings to the table is you can rely upon the benefits of and the power of .NET and, and good object-oriented coding with the dynamic language capability on the client side as much as on the server side. So that, I think this is not removing capability or fundamentally making you do things differently on the server side programming. What this is about is that it enhances your capability on the client side. Now, John Lamb also focused on in the browser JavaScript and all that stuff. But what about what about server side stuff? What about ASP.NET programming on the server side? What about Windows applications? What about WPF applications? We're we going to see this permeate into all sorts of programmable applications. Well, I think it should actually. I would I would like for things to become better over the time. Uh, again, it, I, I don't think it is about forced to change your way. You know, to a certain extent, you may argue that when .NET came out, uh, VB6.0 programmers were kind of left behind. They could still code in VB6.0, but if they have to do really take advantage, they have to move to something like VB.NET. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't suppose that it's going to be 
that drastic uh, a change. You could still benefit from your C-sharp. You could still benefit from your VB.net. Now, there's a few things that are happening because of the dynamic language influence, and this is not necessarily related DLR, but there is influence of dynamic languages in the C-sharp language already. We've seen that quite a bit, right? We got things like link. We have things like method extension capabilities in C-sharp. Uh, in fact, I've been able to benefit from uh, somewhat of a, uh, a closure implementation with anonymous methods as part of C-sharp already. So by learning these dynamic languages, one of the biggest advantages I see is not that you would quit programming in your language and go program in these dynamic languages, but you may come back to programming in your languages, but the design of your system may substantially be different because now you know a few more uh, tricks. Your bag of tricks contains a few more things that a, a regular programmer in that language may not even think about. So to me, one of the big, biggest advantages of the dynamic languages is it changes the way I write code in my static language. And, and unfortunately, a design is greatly influenced by the language and the framework and the capabilities of those and the restrictions of those as well. But when I learn these dynamic languages, I begin to challenge some of those restrictions and I find ways to do things better. So those programmers who have a good reason not to move into dynamic languages or to the DLR, I strongly believe will also benefit from these dynamic languages because they're going to learn from some of these things and, and change the way they develop their application. For the rest of the people who are interested in making this change or if their job and, and project uh, favors such a change, I think it's, it's, a, it's a greater opportunity to go to something that actually gives them productivity. Now, here is the biggest concern I have. If you, if we refuse to introduce these capabilities into .NET, what's going to happen is that there's going to be a, a few people who are going to find that there's a greater amount of productivity with dynamic languages, and then they may cause change over time and say, look, we need to abandon the ship and move on because there's, uh, there's better gold over there. There's actually gold over there on the other side, so let's go over. So by having these evolved towards it, you are giving the opportunity for people who do want to take advantage of these dynamic languages to not abandon the platform, but bring in those things into the platform, in, under the fold of the platform. I think that's a very smart move from the, from the marketability of a product point of view. And I cannot appreciate that enough, actually. Well, um, Venkat, we've, we've covered a lot of ground here. I, I, I really uh, thought it would be a great idea to just have you come on and you know, tell us your thoughts about dynamic languages and, and the DLR in particular. Is there anything that we haven't talked about that you'd like to get out? You know, one thing I would want to spend a couple of minutes on is just to kind of say, you know, why do I, why should I care from a programming point of view uh, to use a dynamic language? And I would probably say there are a few reasons why I should really program in a dynamic language. Uh, the first thing I would put down as a personal reason is it is a lot of fun. Uh, you know, that may come out as like, you know, why, who cares about, you know, us having fun, but fundamentally when we go to work, if we are not finding it a fun to do, why should we go do it? We're not going to be productive doing it. And what I find to be fun is, you know, I, I learn these things and I program in these things, but when I see that there are certain things that could be done a little differently, it's quite exciting to do it that way. The second thing is, it makes us more productive because I can inject method behavior dynamically. So this leads to something very interesting. There are times when 
I find that I'm more effective implementing maybe a DSL, like a a domain-specific language. And in a static language, doing a DSL takes a lot more effort, whereas doing a DSL in a dynamic language is a lot more simpler. And as a result, again, I'm able to introduce certain, you know, uh, API changes or certain behavior or even certain features in my application, but I can do that using a dynamic language a lot more quicker and easier than a static language may allow me to do. And and that, again, is, is very exciting because I can come up with fresh ideas for my product, but I also can implement it fairly quickly and get a feedback whether that's something useful or not. So overall, I think it makes us a lot more productive in trying out new ideas. And and dynamic language is also a great way for us to introduce testing. There are tools. It is it is it is trivial to create a mock object in a dynamic language than creating a mock object in a static language. So not only testing is more important in dynamic languages, testing is actually easier, a lot more easier in a dynamic language. So I would say if somebody doesn't know anything about dynamic language. One of the best ways for them is to start doing testing of their static code using a dynamic language. And and you could use CLR to write your real code, but put in DLR to write your test code. Interesting and test idea. Code is not production code, right? Right. So that's a great way to introduce and play with and gain confidence. And a lot of times people ask me, you know, how do I convince my manager? I think we should first take the time to convince ourselves. <laughs> so if if we can convince ourselves this is actually useful, this is good this can give me productivity, then why not benefit from it? You know, I, one of the things I want to say is there are probably two camps of people that we know out there who run with it and say, wow, there's nothing better than this, and the other camp that rejects these things because, you know, we don't believe this is going to help us. I think either either one of them is dangerous. I think we should be somewhere in the middle where we say, maybe this is useful, but I'm going to take the time to play with it and see how it is useful and especially how I can benefit for my own project. I think that that is that paves a great way to um, to get into you know into these dynamic languages and uh, use these technologies. Excellent. All right, Ben Cat. Well, thanks for being on the show. All right. And uh, it's always a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you, Paul. And we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is recorded and produced by Pwop Productions, providing professional audio, audio mastering, video, post-production, and podcasting services. Online at www.pwop.com. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter and offering custom on-site classes in Microsoft development technology with expert developers online at www.franklins.net For more .NET Rocks episodes and to subscribe to the podcast feeds go to our website at www.dotnetrocks.com Got a transmitter band by the FCC